Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pulse Podcast. My name is Jeff Frost. I'm a second-year resident in physiatry at UBC, and I'll be your host today. Today, I had a really exciting conversation. I spoke with Dr. Paul Healy. Dr. Healy is an emergency physician in Oakville, Ontario, but very importantly, he runs the Physician Financial Independence Group on Facebook. I don't know if you've ever heard of this group, but it's a large group of about 6,500 physicians and their spouses, based here in Canada primarily, that discusses topics important to the financial health of physicians. I personally am a member, as you'll hear in our interview with Paul. I've learned a lot from the group, and I was really thankful that Paul took the time to talk to us to give us basic financial advice for residents. I think it's great that we all start to think about how to have financially healthful life, and I'm really thankful that Paul was able to really give us a lot of good wisdom in the interview you're about to hear. It is one of our longer interviews, but I still think it's really worth the time, so... So I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Have a great listen. So good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, wherever you find yourself in the day, and thank you for coming back to listen here on the Pulse Podcast. My name is Jeff. I'm a second-year resident, I guess for another few days, in physiatry at UBC, and I'm here today with Dr. Paul Healy. Paul, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, Sure. So I'm an emergency physician from uh, Oakville, Ontario. Uh, I'm married. My wife, uh, Jane Healy, and I run a discussion group on Facebook. It's called Physician Financial Independence Canada, and it is a chance for physicians from all over Canada and their spouses to discuss financial issues. We started uh, about a year ago. The group has been very popular. We have about 6,500 members now, uh, and we discuss any and all issues that are related to finance for physicians. We don't make any money from it. We don't have any sort of financial interest. It's just physicians teaching physicians about money and happiness. You know, thanks a lot for pointing out that you guys don't actually have a financial stake in that Facebook group because one of the big reasons I wanted to speak to you was because I was hoping to get some unbiased financial advice. I find often as a resident, I'm asked to go attend lecture series or talks from, I suppose, well-meaning individuals who, at the end of the day, do have a financial stake in some of the advice they're giving out to residents. So I was really just hoping to have a chat with you about finances, knowing that I won't be asked for a credit card at the end of the discussion. No, and there will be no hidden fees. (laughs) That's good to hear. So, Paul, thank you very much for coming on. I mean, the big point of our talk today is I was hoping to just get some baseline financial advice for residents that are starting their residency, and maybe even if they're just a few years in. I find personally, living in Vancouver, finances are challenging. I'm not going to lie. It's it's not like I have a lot of extra money. I'm usually living paycheck to paycheck, which is just such a wonderful experience. So I, I was hoping to just have a talk with you about basic financial literacy and basic financial advice. Sure. So I have a lot to say. I think that we could spend hours talking about this. But um, <laughs> the, the first thing I, I want to say is that you know if you're a resident uh, now or you're a young staff, you're facing a very different financial situation to what I faced. Uh, I probably had the opportunity to make more mistakes than than you'll be able to make. And this is something that you have to really get right. You have to get on this. You're going to have to learn. You're going to have to educate yourself about how to manage your finances. You know, the reason why it's harder, I, I think I probably don't even have to tell you. I think it's probably apparent to you, but you have much larger debt uh, than I did coming out. The most I ever paid for medical school, my tuition was $9,500. 
usually people just coming out get a bit angry when they hear that, but that's the truth. So I don't, I'm not, I didn't graduate with the debt that you'll have. Uh, housing is also a big issue if you're going to live in a big city. There's been big inflation in housing markets, and if you want to buy a home, you're going to have to go into significant debt. That's something that I didn't have to do. And you're also facing, um, you know, decreasing fees in Ontario. The fee schedule has been cut back, so you're making less money. And at the same time, all of your costs are increasing. Minimum wage is increased. If you have an office, you're going to have to pay your staff more. Fees for all the professional associations have increased. For you know, in Ontario, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, all of that is is increasing. So you really have to get your act together understand money and, and put in the time and effort to, to understand it. Wow, Paul, what a depressing start to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't blame yeah. you. I mean, I, I share your opinion on all those topics. Yeah. But Well, uh, here's, here's the thing. You know, this is the important thing is that you said you wanted unbiased advice. And, yeah. you know, if you see a financial advisor, they're going to want to talk about investing. Right. Uh, because investing, there is an incentive for them to talk about investing. Yeah. So they tend to overlook the areas that will really bring you towards financial independence when you're young, which is how you spend your money. Right. Um, being frugal, spending your money efficiently, spending it what's consistent with your values. And those are not other things that they're going to talk to you about. So it is depressing, you're right. But you know, if you face it and sort of get your house in order, you'll save yourself a lot of unhappiness later. Yeah, I'm sure you're correct. I haven't gotten to a point in my career where I'm debt-free, but I like to think that by spending correctly now, I can get there more quickly. So, I mean, you, you said a lot of things in that opening paragraph, but I'm actually going to wind the tape back and just ask, why did you start the Facebook group? What was the impetus behind starting that? I was always interested in uh, in, in personal finance. And I, you know, like a lot of physicians, I kind of banged around and I did different things. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how to invest and how to invest money. I was in an investing group with other physicians where we tried to pick stocks. You know, I tried different sort of things where for a while there I was doing some precious metal investing. And eventually I, I, I kind of realized that those things weren't working. And I kind of bounced around and, and I settled on for investing about how to do index investing. And my wife and I are, are pretty frugal types. And so right from the beginning, we kind of always just had a sense uh, of, of what we needed to do and we were able to learn what we needed to do. But then I, I really started to discover that I kind of assumed that a lot of physicians knew the same things that I did or had learned the same things I did. But, you know, talking to friends, it was pretty clear that a lot of people didn't really know how to invest and, and how to manage their money. So Jane, is my wife, is really the one that recognized that there was a lot of interest, and she recognized that online there were some financial groups you know, on Facebook that were kind of starting, and sometimes the advice on those groups wasn't always the best. It tended to be a lot of, well, you know, I heard this, or my financial advisor told me this, without sort of a lot of the evidence-based uh, kind of information behind it. So we originally were going to start a group. We thought it would just be like a book club. And people said, well, we can't all get together. Let's start it online. Uh, and we did that, and it's grown uh, really quickly since then. So like I said, there's like 6,500 members now, and we just talk about important issues. Yeah, and I, just for the residents out there, one of my uh, fun activities in the hospital, I'm, I am a member of your Facebook group. And when I'm kind of waiting for the elevator or something, I love just scrolling through the group and seeing what people have to say. And, I'm surprised at how much I've picked up, and I guess I guess I've been a member of the group for about a year now. Just kind of, you know, the the five minutes where you're waiting for the elevator at VGH, or maybe 15 if you're a VGH. 
scrolling through the, the feed and seeing what people have to say. So it really is a good resource and I would recommend it to my colleagues. But Yeah, and I, and I want to point something out about what you've said that's really important is that that's how people are learning, right? People say, oh, I don't have time. I don't. I can't sit and read a book and I can't do this. It's all five-minute blocks, everything you learn from our group. It tends to be physicians posting a question and then other people will chime in and answer that question and it is just a, a great way to, to learn. Yeah. Now, I want to actually also wind back to one of the things you said in your opening argument. Now, I'm, I'm aware of what this term means, but I want to make sure everyone is aware because I think once we understand this term, it really opens up a whole new way of thinking about finances. You use the term financially independent. What does that mean to you? So financial independence means that you have saved enough money and that money is properly invested and that the money uh, that you're making from your investments is enough for you to live on. So it means that basically if tomorrow you decided you didn't want to work, you would be able to live off the proceeds of your investments. That you've essentially saved enough that when invested, that makes enough money for you to live on. And I talk about three levels of financial independence. The level one is the idea that you have saved a lot of money, but you would be willing to make some acceptable changes to your lifestyle. And if you made those acceptable changes to your lifestyle, you'd be able to live off the amount of money that your investments create. The second level is you can, you have saved enough money that you don't have to change your lifestyle at all, that you could maintain your current lifestyle, never work again, and live off of the money. And then the third level is when you have essentially saved so much money that the amount of money that your investments throw off exceeds your spending. Uh, and in that case, you are just basically accumulating money. That's someone who's maybe into philanthropy. Uh, and those are sort of the three levels of financial independence. Gotcha. I mean, the, the one thing that really hit home for me is the idea that you no longer have to work to maintain your current level of, of living once you've reached true financial independence. I guess you classified that as financial independence level two. And for me, that's really important for new physicians because I think we're going to get into this, but the way the job market is changing, the way costs are going up and the amount of income we're able to generate is going down. And unfortunately for some of my colleagues in, say, the surgical programs, there may simply not be job options moving forward. So I think it's a great thing to keep in mind that we probably should be aiming for this thing that you're calling financial independence because it gives us flexibility to respond to job market changes which are pr probably coming fast and furious, whether or not we want it or whether or not we're okay with it. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that it's important to, to talk about both sides of the equation. So there is the investing and generating money to live on. But there's the other part of it is how much you spend to maintain your lifestyle. And I think there's always been a temptation with physicians to buy the big house, uh, you know, buy the expensive car, uh, you know, have the cottage, have your kids in private school to live the life that other people expect you to, you know, being a physician. And that is not something that you have to choose. You can live a far simpler life that has free time, free time to pursue hobbies, to travel, to spend time with your children, and you don't have to make a lot of money to do that. Uh, so that's the other part of it, is you can be financially independent with relatively small savings uh, if you live inexpensively. And if you have any interest in personal finance, uh, you know, everybody knows who Mr. Money Mustache is. It's a blog that I suggest you look at. You don't have to live that way, but definitely there's some aspects of it that you can adopt for yourself. 
And this is a guy who retired, well, not retired, but was financially independent at the age of 30 uh, and basically decided to stop working and just pursue the things that he was interested in. Now, he lives on very little money. He lives on about, I think, $27,000 a year. But again, that's the other idea that you have to pursue is that you can keep your spending minimal and, uh, and have control over your life. And like you said, financial independence, the big plus for me is that it gives me total control over how I live my life. If I didn't like my job tomorrow, if I was unhappy with it, I could stop working. If uh, there is something, an aspect of my job that I don't like, that I don't want to do anymore, then when I'm financially independent and I don't have that pressure, then I can give that up. And if you're someone who may have intermittent work in the future, uh, it's going to be a huge advantage to you. Yeah, definitely. And you, <laughs> you keep saying more than I can follow up, which is which is excellent. But just to I'll, kind of, I'll keep my answer short. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, there's lots of content. It's really excellent. But I, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things to follow up here. But maybe an easy way to start this is you hinted at the idea of you. I think you used the phrase a simpler life. Often when I find we first encounter ideas around financial independence, certainly this was something I encountered myself when I first read about it, is, is it, my basic reaction was, well, you're just, you're just telling me to, to basically have a lower quality of life. And if I have a lower quality of life, I'll, you know, I'll have more money to save. I mean, that's great and all, but I don't think I want to do that. The question I have for you is, is it possible to achieve the kind of levels of happiness or levels of satisfaction we were expecting if we just if we lower our spending if we lower our annual spending can we still be happy functional satisfied people uh, I would say absolutely and then I would say that if you look at the evidence the evidence all supports it so this is the whole idea about investing as well and how you live your life is that there are some good studies that we can use just like we do in medicine and with happiness they've done studies you know looking at different income levels and how people sort of report their happiness and for the most part, once you reach about $80,000 a year, uh, additional money that you earn does not necessarily increase your happiness. <clears throat> and that, that's well established. Uh, so I, I don't know that that's true. And, and the other thing is that, you know, just be careful about equating, you know, your net worth or the amount of stuff you own with, uh, with how happy you are. Less stuff can sometimes equal more happiness, you know. And people discover this, you know, they buy a big house thinking that it'll be great and, you know, that means I've really arrived. But then once you have a big house, you have a big mortgage. And when you have a big mortgage, you have to work. And when you have to work, you have less time for your family and for your friends. And then a big house is also a lot of work. You have to keep it up, you know. So uh, just question some of the assumptions, I, I think, that that maybe you've been been handed over your life or by you know, people that you see that are maybe ahead of you in your career and just take a step back and, and say, yeah, maybe that's not right. Maybe my happiness is not really connected to that. And I guess one thing at the heart of financial independence, certainly if you read blogs like Mr. Money Mustache, is he talks about how financial independence really is a mechanism to achieve happiness. And, you know, I'm a snowflake, I'm a millennial, and I can get on board with that. Uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, we only do have one life. It seems reasonable to pursue happiness over financial gain. And it, it seems like if there's a path to happiness that involves intelligently thinking about your finances, I think that's something we should sign up for. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, what I say to people is that I don't criticize 
anyone for the stuff they want to buy if it brings them happiness. If you really want a Tesla and a Tesla is really going to improve your happiness, then I say absolutely you should you should pursue it and you should save up your money and buy it. The problem I have, you know, when I'm talking to groups of people is I say you can buy that stuff and I won't criticize you for it, but I am a little critical when people don't look at the price tag of stuff. When, for example, you buy a car and that costs you a lot of money, you need to convert that amount of money into time and figure out how much time you actually have to spend to earn that money. And most people don't understand that relationship. They don't understand this idea of what I call your fate rate, which is your funds after taxes and expenses. And that's how much you actually make an hour. You know, a lot of people, if they're physicians, they say, ah, oh, you know what, I'm a doctor. I make, you know, $250 an hour when I'm working. So if I want to go and spend, you know, $100 on dinner, then, uh, you know, I should just go and do that. But the truth is that after you pay all of your expenses, after you pay your office, after you pay your insurance, after you pay taxes on what you earn, you make far less than you than you expect. In our group, we've done this this sort of we've looked at this, and basically most physicians really only make between forty nine and seventy five dollars an hour when you take all of those expenses into into play. So if you're going to buy, you know, a two hundred thousand dollar Tesla, do the calculation figure out how many years you're actually going to have to work. You may have to work uh, a year and a half or two years just to have that car. So that's what I talk about when I say look at the price tag. Understand the costs when you spend money. Uh, understand what it's going to cost you later. And I would say that this is a big issue for residents too because I, I sat down with a lot of you know young staff uh, and who said they didn't really appreciate when they were residents that they needed to keep their, their spending in check. That's very important because every dollar you spend is amplified by the fact that you're paying interest on your line of credit. So not only are you going to have to pay back that dollar, you're going to have to pay back the interest on that dollar and the future interest on the interest uh, of that spending. So that's why the most important thing I think that I try to communicate to medical students or residents is that you have to control your spending. And sometimes the ways that you do that are not fun. You know, I did it too. I, you know, moved in with my parents when I had to, you know, to try and save costs. But those things will really put you ahead in the end. And again, just to underline, when we say put you ahead in this context, we're not talking about having uh, more money to spend on trips to Las Vegas. We're talking about having more money to reach an end point where you no longer have to work if you choose not to. Exactly. It's flexibility. It's about money is not about the stuff it buys. It's about the security it provides. Uh, so when you have a lot of money, that gives you the security to uh, say no to a job that you don't want to take, the security to pursue a job that you may think that you may think is better, uh, and it just gives you control over your life. And you know, when you really talk about what makes people happy, it's about autonomy. It's about being able to make your own choices. And when money is not a factor you're more able to make a choice. Someone else isn't making that choice for you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When you, And as residents, we're not used to having any kind of autonomy or any kind of sense of control over our own lives. So we, this whole concept might even be foreign to us. But I guess I can speak as someone who used to have a job before I made the mistake of getting into medicine, I guess. And when you do have that sense of autonomy and control over your own life, it, it can really lead to 
a greater sense of fulfillment and happiness in your in your day-to-day life. I've lived it and I know that's a real feeling. I'm sure you can speak to that now that you've been staffed for 10, 15 years and have probably achieved some level of autonomy and control over how you structure your day. Yeah, so it's absolutely true. Like we, uh, and I talk openly about this. The other thing that I say is that physicians need to talk more openly about money to each other because those discussions, part of the reason that we started the group is that we could see that those discussions weren't happening happening that people were getting bad information and, and weren't uh, weren't necessarily learning from each other so we're fairly open about it we're at sort of the stage one of financial independence where we could make some minor changes to our lives that would be very acceptable and my wife and I wouldn't have to work anymore uh, and I can tell you that it offers a lot of flexibility we don't work full-time we for example my wife will often give away a lot of her you know, weeks on service to other people. And we do that because we have children. We have a, I have a daughter who's 15 and a son who's nine. And they have just become used to always having two parents at all of their events. And it's just sort of their expectation. So that's what we tend to do is we tend to travel with our family more. We just have days off together. Uh, and uh, it, it works for us. It, it gives us real control. It's better than having to go to work because I have to make a big mortgage payment because I bought a house that was too big. And I want to kind of just, I want to focus on something you said, like you spend time with your family because you choose to, your wife takes time away from work so that she can spend time with her family. This is not laziness. This is a conscious choice to live a life that is more fulfilling for you and your family. And I think as residents, we struggle with that idea where you get indoctrinated with the idea that being at work 150% of the time is far better than any possible alternative. And we may reach a stage in life where that sentiment no longer rings true. Yeah, you're giving me more credit than I deserve. I I can be a little lazy and I'm totally okay with that. (laughs) Like, really, it's the whole thing is, is that you don't have to kill yourself. I I get it. I know what it's like to, to be in your 20s and 30s and, you know, you've been pursuing this brass ring for a good portion of your life, but sometimes it's very hard to look 10 or 15 years in the future and to realize that after you've maybe been working for 10 or 15 years, that it's not as stimulating. It's maybe not as much fun. I still really like my job. Don't misinterpret that. I really like medicine, but I like medicine when I do it the number of hours a week that I choose and I like. And I find that once I start exceeding that number, once I start working more shifts in a month, that my happiness decreases. So, you know, I've just learned this. This is something I've sort of learned from the school of hard knocks over the, the last while is that I don't have to work 20 shifts a month to have value. It's just not as much of my, a part of my self-worth. I still really like work. I like being good at my job. I just don't feel I need to do it uh, 50 hours a week. And so I do it far less than that because I've, you know, constrained my spending and because I've saved money and because I've been investing, you know, in a low-cost portfolio for over a decade, uh, I have the complete autonomy to do that. Now, I do want to—I do kind of want to jump on a popular meme we see in popular culture. I've spoken about it, but I want to make it very clear. We often hear, as millennials, we get a lot of flack. I am a millennial. Most of my co-residents are millennials. We get a lot of flack for kind of being lazy, manby pamby, not wanting to do the hard work that's required to have a successful career. And we're kind of talking about scaling back work to achieve happiness. We're, <laughs> that sounds like the lazy millennial myth to me. 
Where do you where do you sit on that? How do you respond well, to that? Yeah, first of all, I, I hate all of this uh, millennial talk. I, I just I think it's ridiculous. Honestly, I just cringe every time I see it on Facebook. Uh, the whole idea that somehow young people today, you know, don't work as hard as people used to, and you know, are fragile. None of that is true. The the truth is, it says more about the people making the criticism than it does about the people being criticized. The people who are you know criticizing millennials don't remember what it was like. Uh, they don't realize that their perspective has slowly changed over the decades. And this is something that every generation has said about the previous generation. So I don't know why this sort of, like you say, this mem has gotten so much traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, first of all, I, I disagree with the, the whole mem. I, I don't think that young people are any different than young people were 20 years ago. I don't think that the residents and medical students that I work with are any different than I was. So I, I reject all of that. Uh, I think the whole thing is, though, if you want to put a positive spin on it, I would say that the people who've decided they maybe want to work a little less and want balance in their lives are looking at the people ahead of them and picking and choosing the best aspects of it. So I think that you should almost look at it like an evolution. You know, if your parents or the staff, physicians, you know, 10 or 15 years ahead of you, wanted to to kill themselves and work a lot and work was sort of their value system, uh, then that's fine for them. But if that's not the case for you, then you don't have to choose that. And again, I'm not criticizing the people that work a lot. I admire, you know, their dedication. I admire the level of skill that maybe I won't achieve because I don't work that much. But I am comfortable enough with my own self-worth that I don't have to do that. Uh, yeah, it's it's okay to to be lazy. I think you should still be, you know, constructive. I think you should still do meaningful things. But if occasionally you want to, you know, take a couple days off and ride your bike or go for a hike or, you know, hang out and watch a TV show with uh, with your kids, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, Paul, welcome welcome to the millennial generation. It sounds like you'd fit in. <laughs> I kind of want to. I, I, I think we've had a really excellent meta level talk at this point as to what the point of thinking about your personal finances is. I hope the takeaway people have gotten so far is that we're really seeking happiness and fulfillment, not a big bank account. But I want to get down to the nitty gritty. So you mentioned there's really two components to this equation: it's money in and money out. Money in is pretty fixed for us as residents. We can, we can talk about that, but I'll leave that aside for now. But the second part of that is money out or spending. Uh, and one thing I want to ask you, like, could you just give us three tips, three big ways that you see your maybe your peers or the residents you work with spending money that you think could be reevaluated? Uh, yeah, I have a lot of them. And people never like to hear this because it's always hard. So I always like to say... Not don't do this, but look at what it's actually costing you and make that value determination. So the big thing that I see are cars, right? I see people who are buying uh, new cars off the lot. If you're a resident or a medical student, you're often having to debt finance that. And when you're debt financing that, compound interest is working against you. If you can at all avoid buying a car, I would highly recommend it. And I know that some people will, will really not buy into that, but that is probably one of your, your biggest line items uh, when you look at insurance and car repair and gas. So if you can get away without it, you know, buy a used car and keep your expenses low. The other big thing I would say 
Uh, and again, this is not necessarily residents, but this is more um, younger staff. Uh, I see them really wanting to buy big houses and spend a lot of money on housing. I would say avoid that. Consider your other options. So, you know, renting is now, I think, in most markets, a far better uh, financial decision than buying, given how how inflated the, the real estate market is. So I think that that's, uh, that's a big one as well. And the other thing is be very careful about travel. And I understand being young and that you may have time to do that and that you don't have children and, 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 and necessarily responsibilities. So travel is a good thing, but if you're going to do it, do it very frugally because, again, that's money that's sort of gone, that you have no asset to associate it with after you've spent it. And again, you're having to debt finance all that. So if you're debt financing it, the, the cost or the price tag is going to be amplified by the compound interest that's working against you. So those are sort of the three defensive things or sort of money out things to use your term that I would say people need to really keep a close eye on. So just two things I want to jump on there. The car thing, I just want to add personal experience to this in case it might help anyone out there. Uh, when I moved to British Columbia, I moved with my lovely little car. I'm originally from Ontario, much like you. And I have to say, I think the biggest financial mistake I've made in my life was buying that car. Because, like you said, I bought it new at the start of medical school. And I thought, oh, this is great. It'll help me get from rotation to rotation. And after owning it for about four years, I realized that my annual cost of ownership was easily in the like $8,000 range, which is quite a lot of money, especially when you look at our after-tax income as residents. And I bought a really cheap car. I bought like a bad Kia, a Kia Rio. And shortly after getting here to, to BC, I was unfortunately in a car accident, totally totaled the car, but it, it kind of forced me to think about it because I got a check from the insurance uh, company and it said, you know, here's the money, here's the, the street value of your car. And I looked it up online and was like, yeah, okay, that is about the street value of my car. And then I thought, well, do I really want to take this check and buy my car again? You know, it, it was costing me $8,000 a year just to own this thing. I have $120,000 in debt which I think was actually kind of low for a medical student exiting medical school and starting residency. And I asked myself, well, the interest on my debt already is $400 a month. What if I just dumped this $10,000 check into my line of credit and just forgot about the car? See, that, that what that does, that forced you to look at the price tag. Right? Exactly. You, you bought something and you didn't really look at the price tag. And, you know, you could take that one step further. You could say, well, I, I bought a car, so I spent a lot of money. I debt finance that, so now every year that's growing against me. And then try and convert that to, say, when you're a staff, how much more am I going to have to work to pay all of that back? And how many hours of my life is that going to consume just to pay off that debt? So cars cars are a big one. And I think, you know, you, you learned it through the school of hard knocks, just like I've learned a lot of my financial lessons. But if you can you know, have a minimal footprint, keep your expenses low, you'll be far better off in the long term. And I want to say a question that comes up here in Vancouver a lot when my co-residents find out I don't have a car is uh, like, how do I get around? Vancouver is a special case. It actually is really easy to get around with in a, without a car because we live in a fairly temperate climate. So you can just bike everywhere all the time. That's not really the same for the rest of Canada. I appreciate that. But thankfully, this is the Resident Doctors of BC podcast. So. <laughs> but the one thing I would point out is there's lots of options. Like you can use public transit as much of a hassle as that can be. You can bike. You can walk. 
And then I also often get the question like, well, isn't that taking away from what you're able to do on, say, weekends? And I have to admit, there is some truth to that. Like on weekends, I can't just jump in a car and go for a hike in a distant mountain. But at the end of the day, this is all about planning and self-discipline, I think. And what I've come to learn is if I want to go for a nice hike in the mountains, I can just rent a car for a weekend. And believe it or not, renting a car for a weekend is significantly cheaper than owning a car that you might use to drive to the mountains eight times a year. You, you, what you pointed out there is incredibly true, is that people seem to think this is a binary decision, either have a car or not, when really you have all kinds of transportation op- options. You have walking, biking, Uber, sharing rides, uh, you know, and the most important thing is to try and live, I know this is hard when you have different rotations, but try and live close to where you work. That That's a critical decision. So uh, again, there are a lot of other options. And just to follow that up, if, if anyone's ever read Mr. Money Mustache, one of his big things is living close to where you work, especially in the North American context, because our commute times can be so long. And that is the most valuable asset you have, time. And when you're throwing an hour and a half away on commuting every day, I think that that's a real cost that we don't often appreciate, both both just in terms of the time, but then the cost to do that, owning the car, the gas, the insurance, all that. And I think if there's one message we can take away from a discussion of financial independence, it's learning how to do accounting of your own life in terms of both time and cost. Is it really worth the cost of something that you're purchasing, as you've already mentioned, Paul? And for me, it's also, is it worth the time? Uh, so for me, I, after commuting for many years in Toronto, I learned that the cost of commuting in terms of time was never really worth it for me personally. That's my own personal decision, but it does mean I live close to a hospital so I can bike to the hospital so I don't need to own a car and all the positive benefits that fall from that decision. Yep, I totally agree. And, and I think it's interesting when we start structuring our lives in a way that where things build upon themselves. So if you don't have to travel far, then you don't have to have a car. It saves you a lot of money, saves you a lot of time. And it, it's kind of like a snowball of positivity if you take the time to plan. Absolutely agree. All right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you, you mentioned the car, and then uh, I think you're, what were the two other big, it was buying too much of a house, and what was your third big spending mistake? Uh, the thing with spending mistake is, is travel. Just be careful right. with travel. And when you're doing travel, you need to do it very frugally because there's, there's no asset left over. That money is essentially gone. And uh, when you're at your stage of your career, it's, uh, it's all debt financed. Right. So, uh, you know, we like to travel, you know, my wife and I, but uh, we, again, we're still pretty frugal about it, even though we could afford to do otherwise. We like to, you know, do Airbnb. Uh, we like to make our own meals even when we travel. So we will still eat out occasionally, but we like to, to do, do it that way. Uh, and it's just a, a, it's a good experience to do it that way. We really kind of, by doing an Airbnb, we really find that we kind of experience the culture of wherever we're going uh, a little bit more. So those are all really important things. So maybe we can be a little more positive and flip it on the other side. Sure. What are what are like the two or three things you think people can do that are really great ideas? As far as your finances? Yeah. Uh, I think for the, the, the cheapest thing that you can do that's absolutely free is to start learning and start reading now about uh, about what you're going to encounter first talking about lifestyle but then you also need to start learning about investing and actually i've really enjoyed this talk with you because we've talked a lot about frugality and spending and i don't get to talk about that as much because most of the the people in our group 
our staff uh, or our newly starting or people who are experienced. And so all they want to talk about uh, is basically investing, you know, taxes and that sort of thing. But I think that the more you understand about invest, investing, even at this point, the better off you'll be in the future. Because you run the risk that if you don't educate yourself now, if you don't start reading, when you get out and you're farting, starting your first job, um, you will be very busy. And what I hear from people is, you know, I'm too busy. I, I can't learn about all of this investing stuff. You know, I'm just going to hire a financial advisor. And I'm going to get the financial advisor to, you know, to do it all for me. And so that's what a lot of people do. And again, that's another example of not looking at the price tag. Because financial advisors are very expensive, more expensive than most people realize. And again, I don't think there's any problem with having a financial advisor, but you have to know what you're paying them and you have to determine that you're getting value for it. So really spend the time, read blogs. I think Mr. Money Mustache is great for lifestyle. Uh, if you want to learn about uh, investing, the Canadian Couch Potato is a great guide to index investing. Our Facebook group, uh, again, is a, a great place to learn. As long as you're a physician or a physician spouse, you can join. Start really learning uh, about investing. Learn what a TFSA is. Learn what an RSP is. And, and have all of that in mind. The other thing you can do that's really easy, and this is my tip for everyone that you can, over the phone, possibly save yourself hundreds or thousands of dollars with just a quick phone call, is look at the interest rate that you're paying right now on your line of credit. The interest rate you should be paying is prime minus 0.25%. Uh, if you're not getting that rate, then you need to keep trying until you get it. Uh, and you may say, well, it's just a quarter of a point. It's not that big a deal. If you've got $200,000 in debt, 0.25% is $500 a year. And keep in mind that that compounds every year. So that's something easy and positive that, that you can do. So I would say learn about investing. Um, understand sort of how to manage your debt. And the other thing I would say is make sure that you really um, uh, minimize all of your all of your costs. So, you know, what are you paying in cable? What are you paying in internet? Is that really the best price? Have you called to ask if that's the best price? All of those things are uh, are, are really good. Yeah, great, great thoughts there. I want to kind of shift the discussion to something that you mentioned earlier, which hangs over the head of most residents. It's this tension between the fact that we typically start our careers later than physicians that are a generation ahead of us because of the inflation of qualifications. Most people finishing residency now are actually a bit older than their staff were when they finished residency. Beyond that, we have much higher debt. You've already spoken to this. As a cost of medical school, it's kind of gone up far faster than the rate of inflation. So we're now leaving debt, leaving medical school with debt in the range of $180,000 just the average, depending on what source you're reading. What do you make of that whole challenge? Uh, it's a big challenge, uh, and it's it's going to require it's going to require a big change in in how physicians have practiced and what their expectations are um, for spending and lifestyle, and and that's a hard thing to to say to people. Uh, but when you are uh, older and you have you know greater debt. It's going to be very challenging at the beginning. And the best advice I can give is to not uh, not get into lifestyle inflation right at the start when you finish. Start to hammer away at that debt so that then once your debt is minimized, then you can start investing and then you can reach financial independence. But you're right. It's a huge challenge. And I, I totally sympathize with, with people coming out now with what they're facing. 
the advantage, though, the good thing is, uh, I think, is that you won't have to make as many mistakes as I did because of social media, because of the internet now, where you can find unbiased financial advice. So that is the biggest thing that, that new staff or residents have going for them now, is that you can instantaneously get online and find information that took me years to figure out and that cost me money to figure out because I didn't know what I was doing. So you can at least get on the right track. So the first part is to reduce your debt, and then when you're ready to invest, uh, what you'll need to do will be all laid out for you. I think I was uh, trolling around on the White Coat Investor one day, which, to be fair, is an American page, so it's it's not totally applicable to us as Canadians. But one of the things he said, which I think is a one-sentence summary of some of the things you just said, is that new physicians today need to realize that they are some of the poorest people in their local geography. And when you finish residency with a debt load of two to $300,000, and your net worth, which is the sum of all your assets minus all your debt or liabilities, is a negative number. Given your age, given you're in your 30s or something, you don't have a lot of money. You need to accept that and live accordingly. And that's a very different paradigm from our peers that are 10 to 15 to 20 years older than us. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's uh, it's true. And the, the whole saying uh, you know, comes up, you need to continue to live like a resident, even when you're uh, staff. Uh, and you know that uh, that kind of hurts a little bit, but I, I think that it's true. I think that ultimately you'll be happier by keeping your lifestyle from from inflating. But I, I absolutely agree uh, with what he's saying. And, and his experience, you're right, it isn't a U.S. site, but as Canadians now, residents uh, are graduating with much higher debt than I ever had to face. And so the U.S. experience is now more relevant. This is the other issue that I want to talk about with debt, too, is that I noticed a big shift because, you know, people have wanted to come and, and talk to Jane and I sort of in person uh, and just kind of, so we call them kitchen table sessions where we sit down and, and they want to talk to someone. They feel like maybe they haven't gotten good financial advice. And what I am noticing with young staff is that they've almost developed this comfort with their debt. They don't see their debt as a, a bad thing or something they really need to take care of. Um, you know, and the quote that someone said to me was, well, you know, my debt is there and I just feel like it's a part of me. You know, I've just accepted that I'm going to have this with me for a good part of my life. And that really struck me when someone said that to me uh, because that's not how I view debt. You cannot be financially independent if you have significant debt. Uh, so you need to take that out. You need to take care of it. And that needs to be uh, a priority. And if you have to sacrifice some of your lifestyle, ultimately your overall long-term happiness will be improved by doing that, uh, by, by making uh, that sacrifice to get your debt under control. Because you, you can't be financially independent if you have a large debt. You have to pay that off, and then you have to move to the other side of the ledger where now you are an investor, and now your money is, is making you money. Compound interest needs to work for you, not against you. Yeah, there's there's so much really good knowledge there. I just want to underline points. I don't think I can say it any more succinctly than you did, but I think it's such important knowledge that I want to underline it. You talked about how debt is important. I know Mr. Money Mustache has a really excellent article about this, which I think is called Your Debt is an Emergency. And that really drove home to me the idea that it's not okay to have debt. The reason it's not okay to have debt is because of compounding interest. 
uh, every year when you have a little bit more money added onto your debt thanks to the power of interest, that kind of snowballs negatively out of control. And the corollary to that is if you have money to invest, it can snowball positively. A little bit of interest gets added to the pot every year and your pot just starts swelling and eventually it gets to the point where there's enough money there that you can live off the interest and you've reached financial independence. I just think all those concepts are so important and and worth understanding. And if you don't think you've understood it after hearing Paul and I talk about it, it's worth reading a couple articles either on Mr. Money Math Stash or, or checking out the Financial Independence Facebook group that Paul started. Yeah, it's really important to, to manage your debt. And I just want to emphasize, you know, the, the compound effects of, of interest because, you know, when we talk about financial independence, we're always talking about it on the other side of the ledger where, you know, this is how much money every year your investments will generate. Well, on the opposite side of the ledger with, with debt, this is how much your debt will grow every year. And then when you compound that, uh, it will just get worse and worse every year until it gets to the situation where you really can't pay it off at all. Uh, so again, I, I know it's very depressing, but you, you got to face the reality of it, that it has to be taken care of. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's, it's going to affect your future happiness and it's going to constrain you. It's going to take away your future autonomy if this debt uh, is constantly telling you that you got to go to work. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, that, that's sort of, I think my message uh, would be don't be comfortable with that. The other, I'm going to just talk about one of the little conflict of interest here too. I don't feel that physicians for the most part have been getting good financial advice from certain financial advisors or, or groups. And I won't mention groups, but the concern is that they would, you know, I see young staff going to see a financial advisor, but what should they do? And often they're being told to invest, that they should, you know, start investing, they should buy these mutual funds. And there's an often, there's a conflict of interest there with the financial advisor, where the financial advisor makes money if you buy their fund, right? They start to get paid. They don't make any money if maybe they give you the most sound financial advice is that really you should pay off debt. So that has been a message that hasn't been pushed on physicians enough. You need to pay off your debt. It's always been sold as, well, you know what? Interest rates are so low that you should just take that money and you should invest it. And because interest rates are low, you'll make more money than you would pay out in interest. Uh, and I, I have a big problem with that before you pay off your debt. If you are a very disciplined investor and you're a very disciplined spender in the long term and over the period of, say, 10 or 15 years, yes, that might be true, that you might be better off investing than paying off your debt. But I think for most people, with normal sort of money skills and normal sort of investing skills, they are far better off attacking their debt before they start doing a significant amount of investing. I think a little bit of investing at the start is, is okay just to get used to, you know, what is an RSP, what is a TFSA, to get used to, you know, how do I buy a low-cost portfolio, but you shouldn't be doing a lot of it. You need to be attacking the debt. Yeah, and I think maybe now might be a good time to pull in some, like, real-world numbers. So, you know, I'm I'm a millennial. My life's on the internet. I don't know how many times I've said millennial today, but let's take me for an example. I, I will. I will. Say, I have not said millennial. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally the guilty party here. I, I, I hate I hate that term, and I hate it when other people use it. So I don't use it. So I always say something else. But you're the one that keeps saying it. I, I know. I know. I'm, I'm. I need to really think about my language if I want to host a podcast. So, 
uh, I would say like if we look at my own line of credit and we and this is to drive home the point about compa- uh, compound interest. I think my line of credit right now sits at about one hundred twenty thousand dollars. So that's a, that's a huge amount of debt. That's not a small amount of debt. Every month, I think the interest charge on that line of credit is about three hundred fifty dollars. Over the course of a year, that is what just just under four thousand dollars in interest payments that I'm making. My salary in British Columbia after taxes is in the range of $3,600. So that's a, I don't know, the always doing doing math on the spot is always suspicious, but that's like, as a percentage, something like 10% of my income, my after-tax income that I need to just devote to interest payments, forget actually paying off the debt itself. That, yeah, that's it, kind of a big yes, deal. <laughs> it, it is a very big deal. And then the thing is, you know, if you don't pay that this year, the next year you have that 120000 plus whatever other interest accumulated. And so now you're paying interest on that interest. And again, that's the compounding. You have to get that beast under control. You want that the beast of compound interest working for you. You do not want the beast of, contact, of uh, compound interest working against you. Exactly. And it's important to note paying off interest and paying off principal are two very different things. If you pay off the principal, the debt goes away. If you pay off the interest, the shackle is still around your ankle. You haven't moved forward financially. And I don't know if all residents always understand that. They see the interest adding up every month on the line of credit, and they might might pay off the interest, which is excellent. If you're getting that far, you're already uh, several steps ahead in my books, but but you still haven't touched the principal, which is which is what really is the shackle around your ankle financially. And, and, I, and I want to point something out too, and, and you've kind of alluded to it a little bit. Um, the issue is when you're a staff and you start to work, you'll then be introduced into our progressive tax system in Canada and marginal tax rates. So the, the idea that, you know, oh, well, it's okay, I'm going to make, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 when I come out, you're not actually going to make that much. Um, you a, a lot of a significant portion of, of what you make in a year is going to be paid to taxes, and that money that you have left over, you're going to want to spend on you know things like maybe housing and food and uh, and other important things that you need. Uh, so the money that you'll have left over to put towards your debt uh, will be smaller than you think. So just just keep that in mind that you. I hear that a lot. Well, I'm going to make a lot of money when I'm done, and it'll be really easy to pay off when I'm done. Uh, it's not always with marginal tax brackets. Uh, you take a uh, you take a big tax hit with when you make money, and you have less to to put towards your debt, because all of your this is another sad thing to to think about, but all of your debt has to be paid back with after tax dollars. Right. So if you earn a dollar, you got to pay tax on a dollar, and then when you have left over, pays off your debt. Right. So, yeah, I think it's always important to remember that mythical $300,000 staff salary isn't actually what comes into your bank account. It's it's not even close to what comes into your bank account. So always keep that in mind, I think. Paul, there's a couple other questions I wanted to ask that are, I think, a little more controversial. So I'm just going hit, to hit them. I don't know how to say this without being difficult. Hit me. Hit me. Be difficult. All right, all right. I'm totally so, okay with difficult. So I'm about to start residency. I'm an, as we know, I'm an R3, but hypothetical situation. I'm about to start R1 in a program that I know is unemployable. So I won't name names, but we all know that there are residency programs out there that quite frankly are unemployable. You can't get a job without at least two to four years of fellowship. That means seven to nine years of residency salary. And at the end of the day, you're not guaranteed a position. 
if I'm in that position, do I need to think long and hard about my career choice? Yes, you always need to. You need to look at all of your options and all of your options are on the table and you shouldn't feel constrained by what other people think is best for you. So when I when I look at that situation, if you have a, something that where you are unemployable, first off, you know I, I would I would question if you're really unemployable, or are you unemployable in the way that you want to be employed? You may have to look more broadly. You may have to go and work in an area that you don't like. You may need to open uh, open your mind a little bit. You may need to consider other venues. You may need to consider you know the United States or or other places. Uh, so think broadly. Would I consider changing if I were following something that was unemployable? Yes, I would. Because again, um, that's a bad scenario. If you come out with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and you cannot get a job, that is a really bad situation to be in. Because trying to pay off medical school debt without doing, without working as a physician is, is very difficult. So I know that that's hard to hear. But I would say that you need to strongly consider that. You need to look at all of your options. You just said something that I want to jump on, the idea that it's hard to hear. I think the first time anyone encounters like a Mr. Money Mustache or any of these kind of what I'll say are radical financial advice compared to what we've come to consider normal in a capitalist society like Canada, I think the first reaction is often very negative. <laughs> the first reaction is like, you're telling me to spend less and have a worse life? You're telling me I need to think about a different job. Like, I don't like you. Forget you. This is bad advice. And I think if you're listening to this podcast and your reaction is like harshly negative, that's, I think, the normal experience the first time you start hearing advice like this. But it, it might be important to listen again, read a bit more around this, and, and ask yourself, am I mad at these guys because they're giving me advice I don't want to hear? Or, or is is there a serious flaw in their logic? And I think you'll come to find that it's the former, not the latter. Yeah. I think the thing, too, is to look at the numbers because the numbers don't lie. Uh, you know, uh, if you have a large debt and you know yourself to be unemployable, you know, ask yourself, how are you going to pay that back? It, it's hard to hear, but it's harder to live, Right. If you can hear that this is the case, but then you're forced to live this in a few years, that that will be even worse. So I, I know that's terrible, and I feel a bit a bit guilty about uh, about you know saying this, but I don't want to I don't want to lie. I want to tell you what I, I think is actually true, and I think sometimes again with physicians and their finances, we tend to do that. We tend to you know accept what we want to hear and, and reject everything else. And I think that's why uh, with a lot of financial advisors, we've gotten some questionable advice and, and we've still followed it. But, and I'm not saying that you have to quit. I'm just saying you got to look at all your options and you got to be very flexible. You know, you may not be able to do exactly what you had in mind, but you may still be able to do something that's acceptable to you. So my advice is you know, not to just quit right now and, and, and declare bankruptcy. Uh, my advice is to try and be as flexible as you possibly can. Right. So I've got two more hard-hitting questions for you. The, the sure. first is concurrent to this financial advice series that we're putting out, which this podcast is a part of, we, we also have a series about starting a family and residency. 
We've heard multiple times from multiple people that it's a financially a good idea to start a family in residency because in British Columbia we qualify for employment insurance and so there is financial upside as compared to being a staff. But at the end of the day, certainly in Vancouver, when you have high costs of housing, almost inaccessible daycare, leading to the necessity of a nanny, these things start to become really, really expensive. But the female residents I speak to say, I can't think of the cost. I need to accept that I have a biological time limit on when I can start a family. So I just need to start a family in residency. Damn the torpedoes, let the debt mount up. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, so you are asking me the really hard question. So <laughs> l- let me tell you from, from my perspective. So I did both. So we had a child in residency. Uh, so it was two physicians. And then we had a child, you know, when we were sort of a younger staff. You know, how, how do I say this? You know, I, I always like to, you know, preach financial responsibility. But, you know, you start a family when you need to start a family, when you can't start a family. And I guess I, I kind of agree with the, the second option that you said, that sometimes it's, damn it, I just have to do this now. And I think back to, you know, when Jane and I, you know, had our daughter in residency, you know, if we had waited... I don't know how things would have gone because there's also this reality where, you know, by the time you finish your training, you're older. You know, infertility is a big issue with uh, with physicians. Uh, and if a family is really important to you, then, you know, you, you have to have a family when you can have a family. So I guess that's one instance where I'm advocating to be a little bit financially irresponsible, uh, which I, you know, I wouldn't normally do. In most cases, I don't. But there are some sort of biologically necessary things that <laughs> override personal finances. <laughs> so I, I guess I, I'm going to say that if you if you want to have a child and you can't have a child, that uh, that may be the case. But my argument would be that you should minimize those costs of having a child. You know, with children, you know, you don't need a lot of the expensive gear. Uh, you don't need as much as, as that. And I would also say that, you know, again, you're going to have to be flexible and lower your standards. Jane and I we did this. We had a child when we were in residency, but we actually moved in with family. <laughs> we lived with family for for a year and a half to sort of minimize costs. So I would say yes, have the children, but I would be harder as far as saying that you have to still keep your costs under control. So that that's my answer to the tough question. Now, kind of to follow that up, I live in British Columbia. We have uh, an interesting residency contract. We have a very high cost of living. If I'm a medical student, which, you know, is an interesting tack to take because I'm not marketing this podcast to medical students, (laughs) should I be thinking long and hard about how I rank things in CARMS to maximize the financial benefits of residency? Well, the better question is, you know, why haven't we always been doing this? Um, Again, we don't really talk about money. How many people, you know, when they're applying for residency, really knew how much they were going to make or knew what the, the not salary, but the income difference is between different specialties. And again, we need to talk more about that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with talking about that. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you there's something you love more, but you also would like to be compensated for your time. So I would say, yes, we need to have those discussions. We need to have those discussions with medical students. We need to have them when they're applying to their residency. Uh, you know, my wife and I are not in high paying specialties. My wife is a pediatrician. I'm an emergency physician. But it's still reasonable. You know, we both like what we do. But I probably wouldn't do it if I were making 
40% of what I do now. I, I would have taken that into account in my decision. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, and we need to be more more open about that and have those discussions. Uh, and I'm going to just make one other comment here. This is a good time to insert this. Why isn't there better financial education in medical school? I want to uh, give a shout out to the University of Ottawa who who asked me to look at, they're actually integrating some financial education into their medical school curriculum. And it's not many hours, but eight hours, but it's high quality. It's not given by you know, people who have a conflict of financial conflict of interest, so it's not financial advisors. It's more like staff physicians who are very good with money. Uh, and I think that we need to be doing more of that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And my biggest complaint with the Canadian education system as a whole, forget just medical school, is that it doesn't actually prepare you to be an adult. Maybe that's not the point of education, but it is surprising how many of us can get a high school diploma and not know how to use a credit card. I agree. I, I think that's a failing of our education system because the reality is you're you're going to have a credit card. Uh, and if you don't know how to use it, that can be a financial burden. Well, Paul, I'm, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I'm also very conscious of your time. I think I've used up a lot of it. So I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us here in the province of British Columbia, so far away from, from Toronto. I just want to give you a space to maybe say one, if you could, positive thing about the financial life of physicians so that we can end on a, a high note. You have a high income, and if you control your spending, if you save, and if you invest, you can have a very nice lifestyle. I'm very happy to hear that. Well, Paul, thank you very much for taking the time. It's been great to, to chat with you. It's been good talking to you too. Thanks. So that wraps up our interview with Paul. Thank you very much, Paul, for taking the time to speak to us about how we can be financially independent as we move through our careers. Today's music was The Usual. Unreal DM by Blue Circles was our opening song, and the closing song you're listening to now is Summer Trip by Tegolio. Paul and I also mentioned a variety of resources in the podcast today. We talked about the Mr. Money Mustache website. We talked about Paul's group, the Physician Financial Independence Group, that's available on Facebook to anyone who's a physician or a spouse of a physician in Canada. We also talked about the Canadian Couch Potato Investor website. And finally, we talked about the White Coat Investor website. So if any of those supplemental information sources appeal to you, be sure to check them out. Once again, thanks for listening. I hope you have a great day. Bye for now.